0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey what is up everybody another week is upon us I just want to say that I am super grateful for you all. It's so wild that I can be here right now recording this intro to this podcast, recording this podcast with Max Lugavere. And there are just thousands of people listening. So I love doing this. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. Please leave me feedback in iTunes if you enjoy it. It's doing super well. It even got featured in iTunes and are new and noteworthy. It is just, it's a fire podcast because you guys are telling me that it's good and i'm having so much fun doing it i enjoy these conversations and this one was certainly certainly no exception max is an incredible guy if you do not know him you should he is the author of the new york times best selling book genius foods become smarter happier and more productive while protecting your brain for life he is also the host of the number one's itunes health podcast the genius life he appears regularly on the Dr. Oz show, the Rachel Ray show, and the Doctors. He's contributed to Medscape, Vice, Fast Company, CNN, and the Daily Beast, and has been featured on NBC Nightly News, the Today Show, and the Wall Street Journal. It is an impressive resume, my friends, and he is also a really down-to-earth and cool dude to hang out with in person. So this was the interview that we recorded for my podcast. We had previously in the evening recorded an interview for his podcast The Genius Life. So my interview with Max on The Genius Life will be out soon on his platform. In that interview we talked a lot more specifically about the carnivore diet, about his thoughts about it. We went back and forth a little bit. He challenged me about it and we had some really interesting discussion that I think will be quite enlightening. In this podcast Max talks a lot about his personal experiences that led him to his interest in understanding how to really protect our brains. We go into lots of detail about dementia, neurodegeneration, how to prevent that, how to live a smart life in terms of protecting your brain. We talk a little bit about how both of us work to keep our brains healthy, and we get into some personal stuff that each of us do in terms of exercise routines, individual nutrition stuff, and there's a little bit of an aside partway through where I go off on a tangent about my current thinking about lipids. If you've listened to this podcast recently, you know I've done a few episodes on lipids. It is something I am super interested in, but I really enjoyed this conversation with Max Lugavere. He is such a good dude, and I think you guys will learn a ton and enjoy this as well. Again, please leave me a review on iTunes if you like it, and send this podcast to the moon. All right, so in addition to all of that, Ancestral Supplements is the sponsor for this episode. I really appreciate these guys. You guys know that I really like nose-to-tail eating. I appreciate the benefits of organ meats. Ancestral Supplements is this incredible company that sources New Zealand bone marrow and nose-to-tail organ meats like liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, brain. And they put them in gelatin capsules because not everybody wants to be out of sight like me or weird like me and eat them that are not in gelatin capsules. But I love these when I'm traveling. I'll use them if I can't get the organs that I want. We know that traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believe that eating organs from a healthy animal would strengthen the support, the health of the corresponding organ in the individual. Both Max and I agreed in this podcast that we felt like supports like. And so the supplement that I've been thinking a lot about recently is the brain. I've actually been eating real brain recently, if you follow my Instagram, I've been eating lamb brain, thanks to the friend of mine on Instagram who sent me lamb brain, but they have a beef brain supplement for those of us that can't get the brain, and I think this is such an interesting thing to consume. It's probably a very beneficial thing for our brains. We know it contains factors that support the survival of existing neurons and encourage the growth of new neurons, such as sphingomyelin, which plays a role in the myelin sheath around the neurons so check out ancestral supplements.com to see what they can do for you they are putting back in what the modern world has left out you guys should also check out my newsletter which i renamed the insider it is now the fundamental health insider go to fundamentalhealthinsider.com to sign up for that i send it out about every week it has all kinds of cool stuff that's going on with me i talk about an article that i think is fascinating that relates to the podcast that i have done in that week also, if you guys saw on my Instagram, the folks at Juve hooked me up. I got a super juve, I'm calling it. This thing is big red. It is a full body juve light and is amazing. Go to dot front slash paul and they will let know that I sent you, but I really like my big juve. It is relaxing. I'm gonna talk more about this in the future. I'm gonna go up to Los Angeles and talk to those guys, film more of those guys, and talk to the folks at the Center for Deuterium Depletion as well. So that is coming up. Anyway, without further ado, on to this amazing podcast with Max Lugavere, my buddy. And if you check out AncestralSupplements.com, the code is Saladino SaladinoMD. Right, Max. It's hey, good to you? have you on, brother. Thanks for having me. It's good to finally connect with you. Same. We uh, We did we, it
1: over meet appropriately enough.
0: We did. We did. We find we met at Bel a few weeks ago because our mutual friend introduced us and I'm so glad to have connected with you because I've been a fan of yours for a while. I think your book, Genius Life, is awesome. And that's the best title ever, by the Thank way. Thank you so much. It's like such Thank a s- smart title.
1: Well, you know, my my obsession is uh, dementia prevention, Alzheimer's disease prevention, chronic disease prevention in general. But I'm very interested in the brain in particular because my mom had a form of dementia for many years that um, was just traumatic, you know, to me and my family, certainly to her, But it really uh, robbed her of her vitality for, you know, eight years at the end of her life. And um, it was just something that I don't think anybody should have to experience ever. Uh, To see a loved one go through that is just the worst thing ever. Um, And one of the most shocking findings that that I stumbled upon, and I'm sure this is not news to you, but Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain decades before the first symptom and perhaps other dementias too uh, you, certainly Parkinson's disease which is the second most common neurodegenerative condition by the time you're diagnosed with Parkinson's disease half of the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra are already dead right so just like heart disease just like cancer i mean these conditions don't uh, bubble up overnight you know where you show up at your neurologist's office and whoops you've got you know Alzheimer's disease this is basically a lifelong cascade that ultimately um will manifest as a disease for which there is no meaningful treatment and i took it upon myself to try to get this information out to young people because um in part i was motivated by my own ignorance you know i thought dementia was an old person's disease i was wrong but at the same time dementia is not a sexy topic right like it's not something that young people care about speaking for millennials like this is something that we we all tend to think of as being something that like is maybe an inevitability of aging. Um what have you so I called my podcast the genius life. I called my book Genius Foods and even though it sounds kind of like a pop term, um it really is you know completely aligned with my mission to help get this information out to people regardless of whether or not they are concerned about brain health, you know, everybody who doesn't want to be more genius in their life. So that's what it's all about for me. I mean, genius foods, my book is the ultimate dimension prevention manual as far as the you know, best available evidence is concerned. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where that name comes from.
0: Well, I love this concept of functioning at optimal brain health all the time. Yeah. And I think that many people throughout the world have struggled with suboptimal brain health for a variety of reasons. And I want to ask you what you feel like is going on in the brain in these pre-diagnosis of dementia uh, times, but I think a lot of people will mention to me they have brain fog. Brain fog is so common. This idea that we are living as humans with constantly subpar function of our brains throughout our lives is pretty striking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the 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 latest uh, study that I've reviewed found it was a, a survey found that one in seven younger people, so people, oh man, I'm going to butcher the age range, but it was younger people. It was like you know between the ages of eighteen and thirty nine, um, complain of memory problems, believe that their memories are not functioning as well as they ought to, and. I just think that's such a shame. I mean, each one of us is heir to the universe's most advanced supercomputer. You know, recently, scientists tried to emulate one second of the brain's operating power on a computer, and it took the computer 40 minutes to do that. So, you know, this is something that It's like literally I consider it the flagship product of Darwinian evolution that each one of us is heir to. We're walking around with this. We're we're born with it. And yet the modern world from every possible direction functions like the Hunger Games where it's just the brain is being attacked from every possible direction. Whether it's our overly sedentary lifestyles, our lack of proper means of diffusing uh, stress, um, our diets, you know, which we could talk about, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals that are omnipresent in the freaking environment. It's just we're being attacked from every possible direction. So, to me, it's, it's a no brainer that people are sick. You know, it's not surprising in the slightest to me that, you know, two thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. Half of the population is at least a type 2 diabetic, pre diabetic, or on their way to, you know, on, the way, on their way there. And that today, if you make it to the age of 85, you have a 50% chance of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So, literally, it's a coin toss. If you want to know whether or not you're going to be demented one day, toss a coin. So, it's, um, It's it's heartbreaking to me because I've seen it up close and I've also seen, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I've been in countless, I can't even tell you how many doctors' offices with my mom in some of the most storied academic medical institutions. You know, institutions where it would be a dream if you were a physician to work, you know, in these environments. And what I experienced every single time with my mom, I've come to call diagnose and adios. Literally, it's just nothing. It's a battery of strange tests, which I'm sure you can describe, you know, better than I can, but not once was his diet brought up in these kinds of contexts. Not once is lifestyle brought up. Thankfully now I will, you know, concede that the American Academy of Neurology has finally made exercise a um, treatment for people with mild cognitive impairment, which is sort of considered a pre-dementia. Um, so, you know, exercise now can be written on the physician's pad. Uh, but, still man there's still a lot that needs to be learned and um, and and even what we do know it takes 17 years on average for what's discovered um, in science to be implemented in the clinic so this is just an area where there's just there's this huge knowledge gap and I'm just trying to you know be out here spreading the good information helping people make sense of what's what you know disseminate the the the, the good information dispel some myths and and help people because you only get one life. I mean, how you live that life is up to you, but you really want to protect your brain because once it goes, man, the treatments, as I mentioned, they're not good. Alzheimer's drug trials have a 99.6% fail rate. And, uh, it's just, you know, yeah, do what you can to prevent dementia. That's all I can say.
0: Well, I think a lot of people are benefiting from the work you're doing. So that's incredible. And I think a lot of people would thank you for that. So thanks thanks for, for, thanks for doing what you do, my brother. Thanks. I appreciate (laughs) that. That's (laughs) awesome. You know, the other thing that I was thinking about as you were mentioning all of those causes of things that are assaulting us is sleep as well. Yeah. And that's that's probably a great model system because we know that amyloid plaque forms in the brain when we don't get enough sleep, right? And that that these glymphatics in the brain are part of this. Did you talk about sleep at all in the book or what do you know about sleep and these plaques in the brain?
1: Oh, sleep is huge. Yeah. I mean, we now know that there's a system of ducts in the brain. Uh, It's called the glymphatic system and it's named because the glial cells of the brain facilitate its function and it sort of resembles the lymphatic system of ducts, which is sort of the body's waste disposal, um, you know, the back roads in the body. Uh, I guess you could call them. And when we sleep, um, essentially cerebrospinal fluid gets swooshed throughout the brain and it cleanses the brain of these precursor proteins that essentially form the backbone of the two characteristic hallmark um, pathologies that have come to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. And I am sure that you in the past, I know in your work, you talk a lot about cholesterol and how you're not a big, you don't buy into the the you know the diet heart hypothesis and LDL as a driver of heart disease. Well, it seems to be a very similar scenario with amyloid. That it's sort of there at the scene of the crime, right? That amyloid builds up in these brains, and on autopsy, amyloid is there. You know, it forms these plaques outside of the neurons of the brain. And for a long time, it was thought to be that al- that amyloid caused Alzheimer's disease. But perhaps, what if it's you know? Uh, it's building up, not because amyloid is inherently bad, but because there's some kind of plumbing problem, for example, you know, similar to in heart disease, you know, you, you could say that there's a plumbing problem in the liver and that's what leads, um, to, you know, LDL basically lingering in circulation too long and then becoming sticky and tricky and causing, you know, uh, atherogenic plaques. Well, when we sleep, sleep is the ultimate brainwash. When we sleep, this fluid, you know, swooshes throughout the brain and cleanses us of amyloid and tau protein to the degree that on just one night of poor sleep, levels of amyloid in cerebrospinal fluid increase by 30% and tau by 50%. So this is a major like increase in these proteins. And it's thought that having more of them around increases the susceptibility of them to misfold and ultimately clump together and form these these plaques. Um, so we need to optimize our sleep. And when it comes to sleep, there's a lot of I think we live in a world now where we're always chasing the most efficient way of doing things, right? We're all about hacking. Biohacking is obviously a huge trend, right? Um, But I don't think it's smart to cut corners when it comes to sleep. You know, we could go to the gym and try to optimize our time in the gym with high-intensity interval training. Certainly, I do that. Um, We can try to optimize our nutrient density when it comes to our food. But when it comes to sleep, I really do think that there seems to be this magic eight-hour Sort of period in which we really want to let our bodies sleep. It's a third of our lives, but it's a third of our lives for a reason because it's just that important. Um, so some of the ways that I like to you know, optimize my sleep. First of all, I like to make the most of the sleep opportunity that I had, that I have every single night. So maybe that for me, that means going to bed earlier if I know that I have to wake up early. I'm also a big fan of blue light blocking glasses. I know they kind of sound gimmicky, um, and I'm actually not a huge fan of of relying on technology. Um, I think you know it's good to cultivate intuition, but when it comes to sort of external you know products that actually benefit health, I think these blue light blocking glasses today are, are very very beneficial. They can help um, optimize melatonin production, or at least reduce the suppression of melatonin production that often coincides with looking at screens and and you know the light pollution that's just so pervasive today um and new research coming out is starting to uh suggest that even dim light while we're sleeping actually can negatively impact cognitive function the next day so that's where i think making sure your bedroom is really dark um you know just taking the leap and assuming because it's a a, an easy modification for most to do that that there's some some truth here that there's some causality here i think it's worth it to make sure that your room is as dark as you can get it um you know maybe it's using blackout curtains or even sleeping with an eye mask
0: i like to make it as dark as i can and so that i can't see my hand in front of my face yeah i've heard people say that that's a good metric and you'd be amazed at how little light you have to have how it has to be really dark for you not to be able to see your hand in front of your face it's like a it's a mission for me to get every place i go that dark
1: yeah, super dark. I mean, I've spent some time recently. Uh, I was camping up in Northern California and it's amazing. Even when you can see all the stars in the sky, it's super dark. And sleeping in that kind of environment, I mean, you wake up feeling so refreshed the next day. Um, so yeah, sleep is, sleep is one of those things that's critical. And if you're, if you're on the younger end of the age spectrum, you need more sleep than eight hours. I mean, maybe even nine or 10 if you're an adolescent. I mean, I certainly remember growing up. I didn't want to, you know, I could easily sleep until noon every day.
0: That's a big part of the growing brain process when you're younger.
1: Yeah. And
0: I love what you said about the amyloid plaques. I know there have been trials, and you know these better than I do, where they tried, they did, I think they did monoclonal antibodies or antisense oligonucleotides for amyloid beta protein, and they got rid of the amyloid plaques, and people did way worse that was some suggestion that when they eliminated amyloid beta plaques, that they were actually serving some sort of a protective role and that we do see them accumulate in these neurodegenerative conditions and there may be amyloid and tau and there are different types of plaques and different types of neurofibrillary tangles. But generally, when we try and get rid of these plaques, these neurodegenerative conditions don't get better. So it's, it's a very good analogy to the LDL thing that there's something else going on there under the surface and they may even be responding to an injury and that's why we see them but they're not causing it from what i can tell either.
1: Yeah, i mean this might be a little philosophical but I've, i feel like that's one of the problems with with you know, traditional medicine is that we always take this like reductionist approach where you know, we love to just kind of like pick a, pick out a villain, right? We like we love to find the villain because then it gives us it's important for the narrative for one and narrative is critical when it comes to selling pharmaceuticals. Um but it's so it's so reductionist, right? I mean like we we take this simplified approach and you're right. Trials have succeeded in removing amyloid from the brain um, to my knowledge, but that doesn't always coincide with an improvement in cognitive function. And it often does coincide with, you know, things that you don't want to happen like brain swelling. Um, and I know that there have been trials, you know, for example, we can talk about like LDL and HDL and, you know, LDL is always referred to as the bad cholesterol. HDL is often referred to as the good cholesterol and they've, you know this better than me, they've, you know, they've, they've come up with drugs that actually can boost HDL, but they found it to not be effective when it comes to, you know, preventing heart disease.
0: And there are trials like the Fourier trial, which can reduce LDL to essentially nothing. We can get LDL down to 30 milligrams per deciliter with a combination of a PCSK9 inhibitor and a statin, and people still have coronary heart disease and still have atherosclerotic disease and still have coronary deaths. So, there's tons of stuff. I actually just released a podcast a few weeks ago where I talked to Nadir Ali on my podcast about LDL if people are interested in that topic in terms of cholesterol. But I think there's tons of evidence that the idea that LDL is initiating heart disease is wildly over uh, overly simplified and probably completely wrong. But it's it's the mainly held belief.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just like, we're so, we can be so arrogant, um, you know, collectively. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of medicine. So nothing against, nothing against medicine. I mean, especially if I, if I need a doctor, if I break an arm, I'm going to the emergency room. But um, the same way that we try to break down food into its constituent nutrients, you know, and we think that we, we've sort of mastered, you know, our bodies. It's, uh, it's just an exercise in hubris in my opinion. But, um, but yeah, that's why I think it, You know, this, the ancestral uh, sort of, you know, looking at everything through this, through an ancestral lens makes the most sense, you know, at risk of sounding like, you know, the, what is it? The appeal to nature bias, you know, like arsenic is natural, right? You know, so, you know, I'm sure some would say, but, um, and that doesn't make it good for you. But still, I think it's like, the best thing that you could do is, is live a healthy lifestyle, be active, exercise eat a healthy diet, what that means to you, you know, feel free to define that as you will. But, um, but yeah, you don't want to get to a point where you have to rely on medicine. And certainly there is no stigma that I, that, you know, to people who do need to, you know, who do need medical interventions, right? I mean, some people don't have a choice, but, um, when it comes to these kinds of complex chronic diseases that are for the most part, lifestyle driven, it's just um kind of absurd to think that we can show up at our doctors offices and get a pill that's going to somehow undo the decades of damage that we've done to ourselves. Um it's just it's it doesn't work.
0: I couldn't agree more and I love what you said earlier about the sad experience that you'd had, that there was no emphasis on lifestyle medicine and all of the care that you were doing with your mom. And I think that is one of the greatest failures of Western medicine today. Having just finished my residency, I've seen it firsthand. You've seen it as a patient and as an advocate for a patient. Western medicine needs to wake up and realize that lifestyle medicine is where it's at. And I don't really like to get into the conspiracy theories and stuff, but you bring up a great point that And I see this with LDL and I see this with cholesterol and I see this with many things that when we have a villain, we have a pharmaceutical and that's a billion dollar, or multi-billion dollar industry without a villain who makes money, who makes money on lifestyle interventions? Yeah. Who makes money? No one. And I can't help but think that that has to do with part of the reason that these are not more studied. And without the studies, what we know now is that physicians are kind of being taught, I think, to have a crutch that if there's not a randomized controlled trial to say something is good or bad, even if it's fasting or a dark room, physicians will say, physicians will say there's no evidence for that and they never know about it. Yeah. And so there's this real stop. There's this real bottleneck in terms of what physicians learn about based on what the pharmaceutical companies or what industry will fund, who's going to fund a study about sleeping or sauna or cold therapy.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important to be, um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not a physician, but I, you know, I think it's important to be evidence based but not evidence bound you know I think that there is tremendous uh, wisdom to be gleaned from uh, traditional medicine um, from people that are out there in the in the wellness community that have strong senses of intuition about health and wellness. I think you know intuition is highly underrated um, and so I think data is great, but you have to understand that science. As much as it is a tool for asking questions and investigating answers it's also unfortunately an industry and health is an industry and you know it's that's not for better or worse but you just have to recognize the limitations of it and that we're not going to have the kinds of data that we need sometimes to arrive at the answers that we want and so when it comes to nutrition for example i mean we're all we have are probabilities, you know, we're just at the very, we've, I mean, there's so many more unknowns than there are knowns. And when we make, uh, nutritional recommendations to people, you know, at the end of the day, you, as the listener, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you have to be able to take these and implement them in accordance with your own fitness levels, gender, genes, um, cultural upbringing, you know, it's like, and, uh, and I think these are all important parts of the equation. You know, Everybody has to consider see, see themselves as their own end of one study and be willing to tinker and iterate and experiment.
0: And I think if people are living intentionally, that's the first and most amazing step. If they're doing things with consideration and they're iterating and finding the diet that works for them it's going to be different for you than it is for me. And if they're thinking about the darkness in their room and these other things, if they're just living in a considerate fashion, if they're living with intention, they're going to advance and they're yeah. going to iterate and they're going to get better and they're going to move in the right direction.
1: That's exactly how the carnivore diet came into prominence. And, you know, right? I mean, it's like, I don't know who originated it, but it's like, you know, so people started to tinker and question and and adhere to these or adopt rather to these diets that, um, you know, any dietitian would call extreme um, and, and not evidence-based, but uh, the, the stories that are coming out from the internet, like, I mean, I, I know I'm friends with Micha- Michaela Peterson, you know, who's one of the most, one of the more vocal proponents of the diet. And it's just amazing. I think we have to listen to these stories and let them be the basis for future research. But I don't see the money coming to study those kinds of things anytime soon. I mean, who's going to fund it? And if it, and if it worst funded by maybe the beef industry or the, you know, then it would be written off because it were funded by the beef industry. So it's just uh it's tricky, you know, but again, always be willing to tinker and experiment and um and change your your hypotheses when when new information is acquired, you know.
0: Yeah. So what are some other ways that people can sort of keep their brain healthy cuz a lot of people that listen to this podcast are young. Yeah. Some of them are young middle-aged, you know, or some of them are young older than others, but everyone that's listening to this podcast probably cares about the health of their brain moving forward. So from your experience, from what you learned writing genius foods and from what you've learned on your podcast, what are some other things people can think of practically to keep their brain as with as much of a six pack as possible?
1: (laughs) Um, man, well, exercise I think is, is crucial. Um, most of the, uh, when it comes to exercise in the brain, everybody talks about aerobic exercise, but I'm actually not a fan of, what my friend Mark Sisson calls chronic cardio. You know, I'm not a fan of getting on the treadmill. I think it's more important to just stay active throughout the day. Um, I've become sort of a fan recently of... Uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which you know equates to, if you're active, it could be half at least of your daily calorie expenditure. Um, I mean, movement is just critical. You know, it, it's important for mobilizing limb fluid. It's great for lubricating your joints, and it's important for the brain. You know, people few people realize this, but just when you when you walk, you create these micro alterations in your blood pressure, and that serves to push fresh blood and nutrients up to your brain. So, I mean, being sedentary like a lake that's lost its inflow, you know, like a stagnant pond, it's not good. You just want to stay active as much as you can. And I don't mean, you know, getting a standing desk because you could be sedentary while you're standing too. But whether it's increasing, you know, the amount of time spent doing house chores or uh, running after your cat or your kids or parking at the far end of the parking lot being active is really important. When it comes to concerted exercise, I'm a huge fan of high-intensity interval training and also resistance training. You know, I've uh written about some pretty high-level meta-analyses coming out lately about the value of resistance training on both depression and anxiety, um which are different, and resistance training seems to have a really powerful acute effect and then in the long term as well. Um it's also great, you know, for metabolic health. I mean, big, building bigger muscles. I'm sure not everybody listening to this is on a carnivore diet. Having bigger muscles are important for many reasons, mobility, um, you know, insulin sensitivity and the like, but also as a means of disposing of glucose. You know, our bodies have very limited glucose storage capacity and being able to store glucose, sugar, carbs in your muscle tissue and and so that you can use them as a performance enhancing tool to support your workouts, I think that's a very important Um, you know, aspect of, of building muscle. Uh, there's a pretty good relationship, um, when it comes to strength and brain health. Um, you know, perhaps it's because bigger muscles kind of implies that we're going to be more mobile. We're going to be moving more. Um, but again, the brain relies on metabolic health. And so by fostering insulin, insulin sensitivity, um, you help to reduce inflammation. Um, and, uh, And yeah, that benefits the brain. I mean, one of the one of the sort of new theories to come out, um, you know, in terms of the etiology of Alzheimer's disease, why it develops, um, many clinicians and scientists alike are now referring to Alzheimer's disease as type three diabetes. You know that it sort of looks a lot like a form of diabetes of the brain, and yeah, it's uh, it's pretty startling to consider that if you have type two diabetes, which is in its essence, a lifestyle disease, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease increases between two and four fold. And even, and you can still develop Alzheimer's disease without being a type two diabetic, but 80% of Alzheimer's patients have some degree of insulin resistance. That is a
0: staggering
1: figure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that, I think that's the key is the insulin sensitivity and the insulin resistance.
1: Yeah. We were talking, before we started rolling, we were talking about insulin resistance as being a sort of like Rosetta Stone of modern chronic disease.
0: I really think it is. I was We were talking before the podcast about some stuff that I had researched recently regarding the LDL involvement in atherosclerosis, and I came back to the insulin sensitivity thing here as well. I'll just enumerate that a little bit because it's such an exciting thing that I wanted to get out on some podcasts. But basically, the mainstream lipid hypothesis is that LDL initiates atherosclerosis, and so the more LDL particles you have floating around, the more likely you are to get injury to the endothelial wall. I don't really agree with this. I don't know. I think that you might be skeptical of this as well, but I don't want to speak for you. How do you feel about that? That L the main L, the sort of the lipid hypothesis with LDL.
1: Yeah. Well, what I, I mean, so I, I feel that it's a problem when it comes to LDL recycling. I mean, the way that the way that I've sort of written about it and conceptualized it, you know, based on, based on my research and having zero clinical experience, obviously, um, you know, I feel obviously LDL is critically important at different, um, stages in life. There seem to be conflicting relationships between LDL and dementia. Um, you know, later in life, it seems to be protective earlier in life. It seems to be, um, maybe deleterious, but I think that the jury is still out and it's hard to do that kind of research certainly. So I wouldn't read too much into them, into those studies. Uh, but Cholesterol is critical for the brain. Does that mean that we need to eat cholesterol? No, because most of the cholesterol in the brain all of the cholesterol in the brain is produced there via de novo cholesterol synthesis. I think that the problem when it comes to heart disease and, you know, feel free to chime in here, is that, you know, the liver creates these VLDL particles. They spend a certain amount of time in circulation growing smaller as they begin to, you know, drop off their triglycerides and cholesterol particles. And before too long, you want them to be sucked back up into the liver by the LDL receptor. But whether it's insulin resistance or inflammation or certain macronutrients perhaps, certain fat types for example, um, I think you know, my understanding is that these LDL particles can essentially get stuck in circulation where they get smaller, the odds of them becoming oxidized increases or modified by sugar, you know, glycated, for example, and they become pro-inflammatory. So they become smaller, they are more easily able to lodge themselves in the endothelium. Macrophages, check them out, they're modified, they're pro-inflammatory, they adhere to the, you know, endothelial wall, and that's where you start to develop a foam cell.
0: And I think that the piece of this that is most interesting to me and the place where I differ from the conventional idea is that it's about the retention of the LDL rather than the LDL itself. That is the initiator of atherosclerosis because what I've learned or what I've Understand at this point is that the size of the LDL particle really actually doesn't matter that much. Mm. The size of the LDL particle can be a surrogate marker for insulin sensitivity, and in that case, it may be relevant. But generally speaking, the space between the endothelial cells is probably 70 nanometers, and LDL particles, when they're the biggest, are 23 nanometers. So even if you have a small LDL, 19, 20 nanometers, versus a large LDL, a pattern B, a buoyant pattern, 22.5, 22.7 nanometers, not going to make a difference how much of it's getting into the subendothelial space. But the part of it that's so interesting to me is that there's a large body of literature suggesting that the LDL particles become stickier and the subendothelial space becomes stickier in insulin-resistant states. And this is where I think we get back to that idea. I love what you said. The Rosetta Stone of so many chronic diseases seems to be insulin resistance. And I would posit, my hypothesis would be that the initiator of atherosclerosis for many people is insulin resistance because it's not that the LDL particles themselves are atherogenic. I think that probably if we look at the numbers of LDL particles in our circulation, that progression of the LDL particle from the circulation into the subendothelial space is likely saturated no matter how many LDL particles we have because we have a lot floating around no matter what we're doing. If we actually look at the numbers of LDL particles, we're talking 10 to the 15th even if you have an LDL of 200, if you have an LDL of 90 milligrams per deciliter, you still have more than 10 to the 15th LDL particles in your blood. Mm -hmm. And so the difference between an LDL of 90 milligrams per deciliter and an LDL of 250 milligrams per deciliter is 2.5 times more, but even 90 is 10 to the 15th, right? And so one is, I, I need to do the actual math, but say one is one times 10 to the 15th, and the other one is 2.5 times 10 to the 15th. So you can see that we're not really, that I believe that at one times 10 to the 15th, the system is already saturated with particles. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's so many zeros. And I don't think it's about more particles getting in there and getting stuck or else we would see a dose response relationship in LDL lowering in the statin trials. And we don't see that at all. In fact, we don't see that clinically either. There's no dose response in terms of these Uh, in terms of LDL lowering. When we lower LDL very low, it's not way less atherosclerosis than if we lower LDL a little bit. So that, to me, it's not a numbers game. It's that there is something that is making the LDL particles more sticky, and there's something that's making that subendothelial space more sticky, and that, I think, is insulin resistance. But... And we know that insulin resistance can cause more APOC3, which is one of the lipoproteins on an LDL particle. That is more sticky. And insulin resistance can cause more of these proteoglycans in the subendothelial space. Mm. The thing about this whole equation that's most interesting to me, and you're very well suited to talk about this, is the type 3 diabetes in the brain and the role of cholesterol in the brain. So what do you think is going on there? I mean, I guess you mentioned it a little bit. Do you really think that there's good evidence? And I think that there might be to show that Alzheimer's, I mean, you said 80% of people with with 80% of people with diabetes... With Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's have have insulin resistance. resistance. That's incredible. So what do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, I think
1: it's, you know, people with insulin resistance, people that that have type 2 diabetes tend to have, you know, rampant oxidative stress, inflammation. Um, You know, they're eating poor diets. So there's all these, like, confounding variables, right? right? Like, they're probably going to be nutrient deficient. They're, you know... So... So yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard to say. But essentially, when you become insulin resistant, um, the brain, the blood-brain barrier, can become insulin resistant as well, and that can prevent insulin from entering the brain. And we now know that insulin is important for the processing of glucose in the brain. The brain is very hungry for sugar, you know. And so, um, any disruption in the brain's ability to to use glucose and to and to generate ATP from glucose is going to cause problems. Um, and this is a big thing in Alzheimer's disease. Glucose hypometabolism is one of the, uh, it's another one of the hallmark features. In fact, it's a feature that, that by decades precedes um, amyloid or tau aggregation. So, um, so you really want to make sure that you are insulin sensitive in the body. Um, and that seems to correlate very strongly with the brain's ability to, uh, generate energy from glucose. So, you know, staying insulin sensitive is sensitive is critically important. Um, How do people do that?
0: Well... You we talked about exercise.
1: I think... Key yeah. component. I think, I mean, exercise is amazing. Resistance training, I think, is is very important. Um, there's this debate online, you know, about what, you know, macros and, and calorie balance and all that stuff. I mean, for me, I think, I think to some degree you can... Outrun a bad diet. There's this whole like notion in the in the in the functional medicine world that you can't unwrap, uh, you can't outrun a bad diet. I think exercise protects you in many ways. I'm not saying you should adopt a bad diet and then try to compensate with exercise, um, but you have to stay active. It's it, exercise is that powerful. Um, so you know, hitting the gym, resistance training, get a good routine going. I think that's that's critically important. When it comes to diet, I mean, I'm a big advocate of a whole foods. Um, you know, unprocessed diet that incorporates both properly raised meat, fish, eggs, um, and vegetables. I think it's totally reasonable. Yeah, totally. Reasonable. You don't have to
0: be shy about that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, well, to be honest, I mean, I spend a lot of time around, I've actually become very good friends with some of the, the, the primary researchers in the field of, of Alzheimer's prevention. And, you know, for one, I think it's important to get the message of just how to eat healthy out to the masses. And I think there's still so much confusion when it comes to that. I've been very lucky in that I've been able to go on TV and do the Dr. Oz show and all these shows where I reach, you know, America, like the stereotype and, and, you know, for many people out there, like ketchup is a vegetable. So, um,
0: ketchup has so much sugar.
1: So much sugar, it's highly processed. It's, I mean, yeah, it's mostly high fructose corn ketchup syrup. Ketchup is
0: diabetes in a, yeah.
1: in a disguise. Exactly. Um, I mean, what sauce isn't for the most part? I mean, except for just a, you know, a, a minority. Um, but yeah, you know, dark leafy greens I think are very important. I mean, Rush University some of the some of the best Epi research comes from Rush University. Martha Claire Morris, who I've I've had on my podcast, you know, she's done a number of cool studies where she's found that people who eat a big bowl of dark leafy greens every day. Um, about 1.3 cups tend to have brains that perform up to 11 years younger on cognitive tests. Um, you know, whether it's the nitrates, I know we've had conversations about, you know, organic, naturally occurring nitrates and vegetables like arugula. You're not a fan of spinach, but, you know, spinach, kale, things like that. Um, people people that eat those vegetables, eat those greens seem to have more youthful youthful brains. Um, now you could argue that there's confounding variables, right? People who eat more salads are probably more likely to adopt other healthy lifestyle factors and the like. So, you know, pretty big,
0: healthy user bias there, potentially Healthy
1: user bias. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not denying that. Um, but you know, certainly when I'm, when I'm eating vegetables, dark leafy greens, cooked a mixture of cooked or raw, I feel pretty good. Um, and you know, I do feel that, that the whole thing with the carnivore diet, I feel like you know we live in a time and we've talked about this a little bit on my on my podcast where there's widespread immune dysfunction right there's like rates of autoimmunity are on the rise um allergies and things like that i feel like if you if you do not have a robust immune system and for the purposes of a definition we'll say if you're suffering from some kind of autoimmune condition then it's probably worth it to try experimenting with a you know going plant free or at least cutting out the most offensive plant compounds like gluten lectins obviously things like that Um, but, you know, I feel that I have pretty good tolerance for these kinds of foods. You know, I didn't take a ton of antibiotics growing up. Certainly I took, I took some, um, born vaginally. I, I get the sense that I'm, you know, boosting my health when I'm, when I'm eating these kinds of foods and I do lab work, you know, I follow up with like, you know, my doctors and things like that. And so yeah, I just think I you know, I think I think they're an important part of the equation. Um but I also think that, you know, where I diverge from them is I also promote the consumption of grass fed red meat and chicken and eggs and things like that. So I think beef is a total brain food. And so I'm right there with you. I think that, you know, eating red meat is is critical. What about organs? organs yeah i'm a big fan of liver I, I also think that it's probably worthwhile to eat brain although i never have <laughs> um
0: i could have brought you some dude yeah. i just got some
1: it it actually kind of terrifies me but i know that there's a supplement company out there where you can actually buy brain
0: oh yeah there are desiccated there are yeah. desiccated brain supplements out there oh, yeah for sure you can get it next time we hang out i'm bringing you brain
1: i mean yeah we'll, we'll cook together i feel like that would be oh, fun. I eat it raw dude <laughs> you <laughs> eat it raw yeah we're eating raw oh my god what did I sign up for? Um, but yeah, you know, red meat is critically important. Grass-fed red meat has three times the vitamin E of grain-fed beef. So it's a, it's a great source of vitamin E. There's a good relationship between vitamin E consumption and better brain health. It's a fat-soluble antioxidant, um, which is good news to the brain, which is constructed of fat for the most part, but in particular um, of a very delicate kind of fat polyunsaturated fats that are very prone to oxidation. The brain is a crucible for oxidative stress. So these fat soluble antioxidants are very important. Um,
0: so it's interesting because we were talking earlier about how like could potentially benefit like, and I was mentioning, we recorded a podcast for your podcast before this. And I was mentioning that, you know, I was eating some of these foods and I'm just that so much of the nutrition we don't know about in these foods. And I'm just wondering as you're saying that how much vitamin E is in brain and how many of these antioxidants you might be getting from brain because there's probably a ton of vitamin E in brain. Probably a lot. In, you know, gamma, alpha, beta, tocopherols, all the full range. I bet brain is an incredible superfood. Yeah. That's incredible. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. The brain has to be super protected from oxidative stress. Super protected.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you consider the fact that 25% of the oxygen that you breathe is going to create energy in a container the size of a grapefruit. Right, and it's just like made of these pouffas, these very delicate, you know, oxidation-prone polyunsaturated fats. Um, you just really have to chase these these fat-soluble antioxidants, and they're very present and easily absorbed in meat, in in red meat, in wild, you know, fatty fish, and the like. So. That's where I think these kinds of foods are critically important. Egg yolks also. But you didn't
0: want to eat my suet. You didn't, I didn't want to eat your you suet. You didn't want to no. eat my perinephric <laughs> fat, bro. Don't yeah. you think that would have some of these fat soluble? I, I think it would. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know that anybody's ever tested it, but you asked me that on your podcast. You know, why do you eat yeah. suet? Why do you eat animal fat? And that's the reason that I bet suet is really high in vitamin E and some of these fats. Probably. I've got, I've got some here, man. You can have some after oh, the man. podcast. Oh, man. I'll let you guys know if he actually does it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um also a big fan of carotenoids, which are pretty concentrated in plant foods, you know, kale, avocados, things like that. But they also accumulate in the fat of animals um, and in fish. So, you know, grass-fed beef, you can get, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin in, in, in the fat, which is why sometimes it's actually kind of – it's breed-dependent. Um, but if you compare uh, from the same animal – if you take the same breed and you feed one grain and you feed the other grass, which is what a cow normally wants to eat, you'll notice that there's more of a, a pigment in the fat of a grass-fed animal. Those are owed to carotenoids like beta-carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, which the animals get from grass and then they accumulate in their fat. And those carotenoids are really important for you know, eye health, skin health, brain health. Um, so I'm a huge fan of those. They act like anti- antioxidants as well. One of my favorite antioxidants is actually found exclusively in... in marine life and that is astaxanthin which is found in um wild salmon salmon, salmon roe yeah salmon roe i Be- just saw
0: you posted about salmon roe today bro yeah that's been a big thing for me
1: is it really yeah. yes so you eat salmon roe as well mm-hmm. i
0: eat salmon roe yeah i've talked about it a lot huh. and you know salmon roe has phospholipid derived dha which crosses yeah. the blood-brain barrier more mm-hmm. and as you noted in your post less mercury it's a smaller concentrated form of nutrients than salmon
1: yeah tastes really good too i love yeah
0: it. it's really good it's a little hard to source yeah but I think that uh, as people are getting more interested in it, we'll be able to find better sources for people.
1: Yeah, it's so good. I mean, you can go to any Japanese restaurant for the most part and get Ikora, although I don't know how they source. but um, I just hope it's not farm-raised. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want farm-raised salmon. I mean, you know, we can talk about the omega-3, the, dif- the difference in concentration of omega-3s between farm-raised and wild, but also farm-raised salmon, they're loaded with endocrine-disrupting chemicals. PCBs, right? PCBs, flame retardants, um, and heavy metals that accumulate in, you know, grain that they then feed the fish, like cadmium. Actually, one of the top sources of, uh, of cadmium in the American diet are grain products, which is a heavy metal that, you know, impairs cognitive function. And it's just, uh, it's no bueno. Yeah. Talk about the heavy
0: metals a little bit. Because you mentioned that earlier when we were talking about this sort of, this soup that we're all swimming in, this milieu that's kind of toxic to our brains. I think heavy metals are a big part of that cadmium is a source of that. I think of cadmium in grains and maybe shellfish, probably shellfish or less. Where else do you think about heavy metals and how do you, how could people go about avoiding these toxic heavy metals in the environment?
1: I mean, I'm glad you brought up shellfish because I think that's an instance where the benefits outweigh the risks and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've, you know, oysters, clams, mussels, things like that. I feel like are so nutrient dense, you know, they're the multivitamin of the sea. Um, whereas grain products are the exact opposite of a nutrient dense food.
0: There's no available nutrients. in Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And yet you're, you're getting all this cadmium, um, among other things. So yeah, heavy metals. Um, this is an area where I've just begun to sort of do a dive, but yeah, lead, cadmium, arsenic. Um, they're just, you know, they're everywhere.
0: Arsenic is in rice, right? Have you heard of that? arsenic and like brown rice and stuff. I mean, that's a big bummer.
1: Yeah. And, the and the, and rice products are particularly concentrated in arsenic. So, you know, now that gluten-free has become sort of trendy, you know, people are reaching for these products made with gluten-free grains. And if you're a celiac and you're just looking for an alternative, then, you know, it's, it's great, but to, you know, to have this increased availability of gluten-free products, but because so much of it is made with so mu- so many of them are made with rice flour they're major sources of, of dietary arsenic. Um, so yeah. And I was actually for a very long time, this is an area where I've changed my stance personally. Um, you know, I was a big fan of brown rice. Like I would, you know, I would always eat brown rice bowls for lunch, even dinner. And if it were white, white rice, I would avoid like the plague. But if it, if you were to put like a brown rice bowl in front of me, I would just go to town on it and probably ask for seconds. But You don't if you don't know where your rice is being grown, you really want to, you know, ideally avoid it, but opt for white rice. If uh, you know, if if you're in a restaurant, for example, Um, rice is grown in the south of the United States tend to be contaminated with arsenic because they used to use it in the cotton fields um, as part of the it was like. A constituent of like an herbicide or pesticide that was very commonly used down there, and it just has, damn pesticides, yeah, made its way into the soil and now they're growing rice on that same land, it sucks up the arsenic concentrates in the hull um or the germ rather, and um yeah, so it's problematic, no bueno, no bueno,
0: and then lead is a big one too, and I think for lead, what I recommend to people is just that they look at their drinking water and get a really good filter, yeah, anything else you think of with lead?
1: Well, actually, I was going to ask you because I use a reverse osmosis filter because it gets rid of everything, minerals included. But on my podcast, you were talking about the value of water from a mineral standpoint. So that's a question that I'd throw back to you. What do I do with my reverse osmosis filtered water, which thankfully doesn't have any of the endocrine disrupting chemicals, the fluoride, the heavy metals, but now I don't have any minerals in my water.
0: Right. So this is a big problem for people. And unfortunately, there's no perfect solution. I think RO, reverse osmosis, is a great solution, but I would remineralize it and then realize that you're not getting any magnesium from your water. And you either have to supplement or get it from your diet. As we talked about on your podcast, it's pretty hard to get magnesium from your diet. In any way, shape, or form. I mean, animal foods have some, plant foods have some. In my opinion, the plant foods are pretty poorly bioavailable. But I think if people are getting, if they're using RO water, they really need to think about their minerals in a special way. And there are products that I'm familiar with, like concentrates from Trace Minerals, uh, that will remineralize the water somewhat. But you're also not getting anything. You're not getting any lithium. There's right. a lot of things in our water, so. I haven't figured out the perfect thing. When I was in Seattle, there was a spring. So it was a artesian well, which is below the bedrock of the earth. So it's actually just a sort of really deep spring and it's tested. And that's probably a great solution, but it's hard Hmm. for people to get spring water all the time. And then I'm not a fan of plastic, so I wouldn't store my water in plastic ever. I don't want to get spring water in like a plastic jug, no matter what type of plastic it is. So what I've settled on now in San Diego is one of these Berkey filters, Mm. which is kind of in between, right? It's not going to take out all the minerals. It's a pretty darn good filter. And there are fluoride and arsenic post filters. So you can get a Berkey that will remove fluoride, arsenic, and mostly everything else. It's probably going to remove some of the minerals, but it might leave a little more in, and that's kind of my compromise right now. Yeah, There is spring water down there in San Diego, but I just haven't been able to figure out how to get it. So mm. I think RO is a great option because it's super clean. You just need to realize you probably want to remineralize it with like trace mineral drops, yeah. and then just make sure you're getting enough magnesium and other stuff from other sources. Yeah,
1: I do actually take a magnesium supplement. Um, I take magnesium glycinate.
0: Not a bad that. idea. Yeah, It's just a tricky thing. And this goes back to the thing you were talking about earlier, and I think this is really the key. I love the concept of ancestral wisdom and the ancestral mirroring in our diets and our lives. I think that the more we do that, even though people might argue that it's antiquated or it's an anachronism, I think there's so much wisdom in that. And clearly with water, we're separated, right? It's like when you were out camping, you're going to get water from the stream and you're going to filter it so you don't get giardia, but you're going to get fresh flowing water. It's going to be really good water, right? And we're just so separated from that in so many ways. And so I think that that's what I keep coming back to in my own life is how do we live more like our ancestors in a modern world? Yeah, And one of the things that I was thinking I might mention when we did your podcast, but I didn't have a chance, was that I almost don't even like the word carnivore diet. And I've almost just started thinking about it as, as an ancestral diet. Hmm. And that sort of opens it up for more interpretation. And I think that's really the the metric or the ethos that I want to pursue in the future. Like, What is the most ancestral diet? How do we define that? You know what is the diet, what is the overall lifestyle in every way that we can live that will get us closest to what our genetics want? What is the most congruent yeah. way to live? And so for me, what I've interpreted right now is that a no to carnivore diet is probably the most ancestral diet, but there's lots of interpretation there and I'm always learning about that too. But I love that concept of just trying to do as much as I can and I think we see eye to eye on this in all areas of my life from an ancestral perspective.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, the modern world has mutated to such a dramatic degree and we're sick, we're tired, we don't feel good. And I just think, you know, we deserve better, you know? And, um, when it comes to ourselves, but then just looking at our loved ones, like, you know, I don't want to see the people that I care about suffer and, and wither and become frail and get sick and die. It's I've, I've seen it and it's horrible. And, um, there's gotta be a better way, you know? And maybe the science will catch up, you know, and we'll we'll arrive at real concrete answers within our lifetimes. But, you know, if it doesn't, I think that it's wise to hedge your bets and to not give the benefit of the doubt to these industrially, you know, processed foods, the agrochemicals that now saturate the food supply. Um, I take this stance in my book, Ingenious Foods, where you know the 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 less time uh, a product or a food or a medicine or a supplement has spent in the you know in the on the sort of market, um, the more skepticism we have to approach those products or those foods with. You know, too often there are way too many instances throughout human history where, and especially in recent you know human history since the industrial. Uh, revolution, where products have been foisted upon people, millions of people, only later to be determined as being deleterious to health. Um, you know, we can look at lead-based paints, which up until just 1978, right, were used in our homes, creating house dust, where our children have been breathing in this this toxic heavy metal, right, impairing cognitive function. We can look at asbestos in our building insulation, which was, you know, used even up until I was a child. I feel like they were still using it. Um, so many other instances, partially hydrogenated oils, right? I mean, I think grain and seed oils like soybean oil, canola oil, these are going to be ultimately determined to be as toxic as many of us in the ancestral community now um, have, you know, promote that they are. But, I mean, it's just every day it seems like there's a new thing that's like we we now have to be worried about, right? The compounds in plastic. I mean, these these compounds that are used to make plastic water bottles are not inert. They leach into our food. New research has come out just over the past month or two about um, chemical sunblocks, you know. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've been in a dermatologist's office where they tell you to slather this stuff on. We now know that they, you know, when used on humans in accordance with their instructions, they enter blood at, you know, frightening levels. Okay. And these compounds are able to mutate and turn into potentially carcinogenic and neurotoxic compounds. And they're no longer generally regarded as safe, right? The onus is now has been placed by the FDA onto the manufacturers of these sunblocks to come up with the proof that they are actually safe because there's just no evidence that they are And yet they've been, how long have they been in our drugstores lining our supermarket shelves and we put them because we're told to by our most trusted authorities on ourselves, on our children, on our loved ones. I mean, these are endocrine disrupting chemicals that we're putting on our freaking children when they're developing, right? Because the sun is so bad for them. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this, but I just think it's like, not to sound conspiratorial because I'm not, but you just can't argue with the facts, man. And so I think it's it's really, you got to become a sleuth. You got to be a detective. You got to look out for your loved ones. And, you know, I don't care if like, you know, uh, it's just like, again, be evidence-based, but don't be evidence-bound. You know, like some of these, that. Yeah. Some of these people like in the evidence-based community, like they're more evidence Nazis than anything else. You know, I feel like if it's, if we're talking about recommendations that are safe, um, And that they pass the test of logic, then, then I think they're worth giving a shot, you know, um, and taking the, taking the trust away from like, I don't know. Don't, don't trust the, uh, don't trust the man, the man. (laughs) No, I don't know. In
0: medical school, we're told that like 50% of the facts we learn are wrong. And I would I'd sort of extend that statement to say, like, you know, 75 to 80 percent of what we see in the grocery store, what we're exposed to in our lives, is yeah. toxic. Yeah, and I love what you said. I think people just need to be woke, yeah, and they need to be aware that we're exposed to toxins all the time, and we're being pushed further and further away from ancestral norms, yeah, which I think is bad for us. Yeah, you were telling me before we did this podcast that you've been getting into some other kind of ancestral stuff that you've been playing around with cold stuff and heat stuff. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a you know obviously big big fan of exercise, which is a form of hormetic stress. You know, really really good for the body. Um, but uh, yeah, hot and cold. I mean, saunas. I'm a huge fan of. Really great research out of uh, University of Finland um, has found that sauna use, r- habitual sauna use, is related to a pretty dramatic risk reduction for Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, along with all cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and the like. I really think actually one of the Um, primary villains in, uh, you know, multiple forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease is vascular, you know, it's vascular dysfunction and sitting in a sauna. It's really good. It's sort of like, uh, an aerobic exercise mimetic in a way it's really good for vascular compliance, lowering blood pressure, lowering inflammation, everything. Um, and, uh, I trust that observational research out of Finland because in Finland, well, you know, for example, in the United States, and this is sort of a good learning lesson when it comes to this kind of research, in the US, you could say if you use a sauna regularly, clearly you have a gym membership, right? And you're sitting in the gym, you're at the gym five to seven days a week, and that's what's responsible. Maybe that's what's responsible for the risk reduction for dementia. But in Finland, sauna bathing is as common as taking a shower. And this is where the research has been done. You know, so every, so Finland is the sauna capital of the world. So I put a lot of stock in the findings that come out of there. Um, and so, huge fan of that. I try to do that Um three to five times a week.
0: Yeah, what do you think the prescription is for that? I know, is this Yari Laucanen's work?
1: Yes, that's him, yeah. And
0: what, what do you think, I remember they were saying, what do you think the prescription is for people? A few times a week at like 170 degrees for maybe 10 to 15 minutes?
1: I think it was, I want to say three to five times a week. Um, but there was a dose effect, you know? So I mean, even once to twice a week, there was a, I believe it was, uh, don't quote me on these figures, but I think it was something like a 35% risk reduction and then 60, it shot, shot up to 65% for um, three to five times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah.
0: And those also detoxify. Going back to like the, the, yes. the estrogen mimetics, you can you can sweat out metals. So I think it's mercury- cadmium and arsenic don't quote me on that
1: well i love that you brought that up because there's a lot of people you know again i call them evidence nazis but that'll say that saunas don't detox you but actually your sweat is a major means of excretion of many of these compounds phthalates bpa
0: yeah and i've seen evidence that the concentration of heavy metals in the sweat is higher than in the blood so there's clear evidence that we can detox even heavy metals and the phthalates in the sweat
1: yeah these plastic related compounds so huge fan of sauna sauna use um cold water immersion you know i think is great uh you know just for mental acuity um i do it pretty regularly how do you do that um well actually it's kind of hard to find a place to do that in los angeles where i currently live but when i was in new york i was doing it three to five times a week because i just had in the hudson river not in the hudson river no i wish i mean that would, that would be cool um although talk about like talks yeah um No, I had, at my gym, there was like a cold plunge and it was, the water was 50 degrees Fahrenheit. That's an amazing gym. Yeah. No
0: gyms have cold plunges. No
1: gyms. All right. It was great. Um, But yeah, in terms of reducing inflammation, um, I don't, there is no good evidence on cold, cold immersion as it relates to Alzheimer's disease specifically. Um, But there is some interest, there are some interesting brain changes that occur um, as well as, you know, in the, in the periphery, the reduction in inflammation is worthwhile. Brown fat, I think, you know, in terms of fortifying metabolic health, you, we can cultivate brown fat. We can activate that brown fat with, you know, cold water immersion. Um, we can boost levels of norepinephrine in the brain. So for that focus and acuity, but actually there's also really interesting research, um, that suggests that the epicenter of norep- norepinephrine release in the brain, the locus ceruleus, might actually be one of the first places affected by Alzheimer's disease. It's been called sort of ground zero for Alzheimer's disease. And I don't know, you know, we need more research for sure, but I kind of feel like maybe doing that cold plunge, getting, you know, sort of a workout for that region of the brain, um, especially when our lifestyles have become so sedentary and we're just so, uh, you know, N- n- not getting you no know, n- not working out that region of the brain so it's not
0: radical anymore
1: yeah we're just not radical anymore be yeah. more radical
0: i mean i love yeah. jumping in cold lakes is invigorating like, i right. love it i miss it
1: yeah for mood i think there's a researcher charles Raison, i yeah. believe his name is i He's, used to work with him really yeah
0: at university of arizona when i went to medical school i worked with him oh
1: wow yeah it's amazing but, but talk about his research well, i've been meaning to to reach out and get him on my podcast but um yeah, I think he's done some cool studies with uh, I want to say cryotherapy and major depression. Um, I, I think I you know I have to I would have to actually review it to like to speak you know to an informed degree on it, but I do know that he looks at that and he has published results of trials where he's used some kind of cold immersion. Um, with major depression, and he's found the effect size to be pretty significant on par with like what you would expect from a pharmaceutical, but without any negative side effects. Um, there are a number of case studies that I've seen where you know winter swimming, swimming in the ocean, uh, has really dramatically helped people with, with major depression. Are we
0: going swimming in the ocean this winter, Max? I'd love to, man. <laughs> Let's
1: go. I love it. Um, I'm going to re- get you surfing, bro. I feel like I'd probably kill myself. I'm not the most coordinated, like, I don't know. I've never been an athlete. I don't play any sports. I don't buy it. (laughs) I don't buy it. I like to, I just like go to the gym and I like, I, you know, I like to just like be a meathead in the gym. Well, (laughs) tell
0: us, yeah, because you talked about exercise and then we'll wrap up because I want to be respectful of your time. Tell us your exercise regimen. I think when you were talking about that, you said you do some weightlifting and some high intensity interval training. I think it's good for people to have the practical stuff. What do you do in the gym now?
1: I love to lift weights. I know it sounds, sounds like I'm a meathead, but Growing up I became really interested in bodybuilding. Um I was sort of an introvert computer nerd, comic book, you know, fanatic. And I saw weightlifting and supplements from a young age as a means of as sort of like a gateway to transcend my my uh my insubstantial self at the time. You know, I was like just not not an athlete and um I gravitated to the gym and I I found some forums online. This was like in high school. So I was like a very early adopter of uh, this stuff. I read The Ketogenic Diet by Lyle McDonald when I was like 17 and I started implementing some of those findings. Um, I wrote my high school senior thesis on creatine. So, I mean, needless to say, when I go to the gym, I do kind of like a... it depends. Some days I'll do like an upper body, lower body split, you know, maybe like a push-pull split. Some days I'll just go in and kind of like lean on my, you know, intuition and, you know, what g- muscle group is feeling the most, uh, I don't know, the st- the strongest or the most coordinated that day. But, yeah, I like to lift weights. I kind of keep my rep range in the, you know, 10 to 12 arena. Um, what sort of movements do you like? Do you deadlift? I don't deadlift. I know that's kind of sacrilegious to say. <laughs> Um, but I just feel like my body mechanics don't lend themselves to to that or at least you know maybe i haven't really been trained but i 've over over the years i've like tried to do it, and I actually had a low back injury a couple of years ago um, from squatting improperly. I just feel like i've been a victim of that you know reduced glute activation due to our you know chronic sitting and one day I was in the gym and it was actually back day, but somebody was doing, well, a friend of mine who I was working out with was doing doing squats. And he was like, Max, come over, do a set. And like, I didn't warm up. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm good. And he was kind of like pushy. And I was like, all right, it's, there's only a 45 on each side. And so I went and I did a set. And I kind of like, I feel like I just like, I don't know, compressed a disc. And my back really hasn't like been the same since then. So I don't do a lot of like load bearing stuff. So I'm not squatting uh, really. I don't do deadlifts. Um, the one move that I've found for lower body that really seems to help and to not aggravate, um, you know, my lower back and all the muscles in that area that seem to become inflamed with different leg exercises is sort of like a reverse lunge with a dumbbell held overhead, like an alternate. I don't know the name of it, but it's like holding a dumbbell overhead in one hand, which (laughs) Because your shoulder, you know, it basically you you have to maintain an upright sort of body position to keep that dumbbell overhead. And then I do a reverse lunge. So sort you of step
0: backwards. Step backwards. Of stepping forward with a yeah, lunge. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Those I find to be very effective in terms of like building glute strength, leg strength, um, and not aggravating my back the next day. So that's kind of where my like leg workouts are. I don't really, I wish I had a more impressive like leg routine, but when it comes to upper body, yeah, I'm doing pull ups and I bench, I, you know, I love to use machines. Occasionally I kind of like, you know, have like more of a bodybuilder routine when it comes to like upper body.
0: What about for high intensity stuff? I
1: love battle ropes. Sweet. Those are, those are awesome. Yeah. Those are awesome. And then the assault bike, whatever that is, that's the air brutal. bike. Yeah. That thing is fucking, gnarly. I fucking, I love it. I love it though. Um, yeah. You know, I feel like, I, you know, again, I'm not on the carnivore diet. So when I do those kinds of high intensity glycolytic anaerobic, you know, moves, um, I feel like it provides a buffer for me to maybe be little, you know, give myself a little more leeway when it comes to higher starch foods, you know, like sweet potatoes occasionally, or, you know, as much of a real food advocate as I am. I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll go for like dark chocolate or, I showed you, I discovered these epic grain-free pretzels. I haven't had a pretzel in a decade. And so now I'm like, I've got this new, like, you know, grain-free pretzel. But we
0: know that they were made from cassava.
1: They're made from cassava, which is pure starch. And
0: I was going to tell you about cassava. But
1: yeah. Um, maybe not, yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Um, no. <laughs> so when
0: you do your high-intensity intervals, yeah. like how often do you do them and how long do you do them for? Like, how do you prescribe it? just for you. I mean, maybe not translatable for everybody, but just as a basic,
1: I, I mean, I go off of like my intuition. So, I mean, usually it's three to five, it's, it's probably about three times a week that I'm doing high intensity interval training. Sometimes I'll make a whole day out of it where I'll go to the gym and I'll, um, just build the day around battle ropes, you know, some upper body high intensity stuff. And then, um, the air bike, um, because the muscle that you're working out, Glycogen is only available to the muscle that is being worked out, right? You can't like borrow glycogen for your leg muscles from your arms or your shoulders. So, you know, I like to do high interval, uh, high intensity interval training that sort of, you know, includes both my lower body and my upper body. Um, And usually that'll follow my weights when I'm doing like a resistance day. Uh, And then I'm not, you know, I don't have that rigid of a routine, you know um i just i don't which might be an awesome thing that might be a really good thing yeah i mean i go to the gym and i i give it like a really concerted concentrated effort um for about an hour um where i'm doing pull-ups you know some days i'll do just an upper body day where i'll do pull-ups and then i'll do bench and then i'll do sort of like isolation moves to support those or like maybe some incline presses or dips um but uh But then other days, maybe I'll do like a back day or a chest day. It really just, it totally depends on how I'm feeling.
0: Have you heard of high-intensity repeat training? I was recently hanging out with Brad Kern. Do you know Brad? No. Brad's a good guy. He works a lot with Mark Sisson. He's written books with Mark. And he was telling me about high-intensity repeat training it's something I've been messing around with recently. The idea with this is that you do intervals, but you give yourself plenty of rest between them. So that a lot of times in the past, I was doing Tabatas, kind of these like 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, times eight for four minutes, and it's brutal. Yeah, And he was saying that, there's a new idea that perhaps we should do 20 seconds max and then give ourselves like three to four minutes to recover completely. Yeah, It almost sounds a little more ancestral to me.
1: Well, I think the question that I would have is then like, to what degree is your phosphagen system reloading during that time? Right. Because you want to make sure that you're working out like your, your glycolytic pathways, right? And so for the first, I don't know, ten I think it's like ten, something like 10 seconds of a high-intensity interval, you're really just using creatine. And it's only after that that you're, you know, using the stored sugar, but then there's a certain window and I don't know what it is, but where the creatine basically kind of regenerates and then you can kind of like become more efficient. I think timing your exercise in a certain way where you can work either system. You could become more efficient with the phosphagen system. You could become more efficient with the glycolytic. So I don't know.
0: Yeah. I wonder about that. Yeah. I think that personally I've had a tendency to overtrain. Hmm. And so I like, I've been kind of experimenting with recently with like intervals hitting the punching bag and doing kicks on the punching bag and doing slightly shorter intervals with a slightly longer rest interval between them. And I kind of like it it just leaves me feeling a little less depleted when I leave the gym. Hmm. I think oftentimes we get addicted to that, like over depleted feeling when we leave the gym and maybe that's too much, but who knows? And I think going back to the ancestral stuff, I just wonder how often we would have just been crushing ourselves?
1: Probably not that often. Probably not that often. You're right. Yeah. So that's why I like to do kind of like, um, you know, to embody that balance. You know, to to go to the gym. I think an hour is is fair. You know, like to go and give it like you know your all for an hour, and then spend the rest of the day in recovery mode. You yeah, know, basically. Chill out. Yeah.
0: Max, it's Dude, been amazing.
1: Paul, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. This was such a great chat, man. We covered so much.
0: Where can people find your kick butt stuff
1: my kick butt stuff uh definitely go check out my book genius foods which is available everywhere books are sold come say hi on instagram at max lugavir and then i have my own podcast which is called the genius life so you know wherever you listen to podcasts look that up you have a website dot i have a blog where i have some articles um but i don't update my website that frequently i'm very active on instagram and every week i put up a new podcast episode so
0: yeah and yeah. we did one today. So
1: yeah, it's going to go up soon.
0: I'll have one on Max's. I'm pretty stoked to have an yeah. episode on the okay. genius life soon. And you it's guys perfect. should check out Max's Instagram. He does a great job of producing like really good infographics and stuff that really makes it all really digestible. So he's a, he's a pro in the Instagram world. So my last question for you, cause I'm realizing that to be a good podcast every good podcast has like their signature question signature. Yeah. So I was thinking this, I was like, man, I don't really ask a signature question, but I got one.
1: Is this the first time you're asking? This the is the first
0: time I'm asking. Wow. A so signature you came question. up
1: with it over the course of this afternoon. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, when you honor. wait till the
0: question, it's not that amazing. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what is the most radical thing that you have done in the last week?
1: Oh my God. In the last week, what's the most radical thing that I've done? Wow. I feel like I'm not that radical of a guy. Um, well, I went up to Arizona this past weekend for a, a health and wellness conference um, called Mind Body. It was Mind Body Greens Revitalize Conference where I got to speak. And uh, God, this sounds so lame, but um, I <laughs> met like a girl recently in LA who I thought was pretty cool, and I invited her to come with me. You know, we had known each other for a week prior to my inviting her to like join me at this conference and she came with me and we had a really good time you know normally i wouldn't have done something like that but i felt like why not just like share the conference get to know this this new chick and uh you yeah, know that's it that's not probably not in the domain that you were expecting it to come from but um i feel like you got to live at the end the edge of your comfort zone and say yes to things and be open and you know, I'm trying to embody that in all aspects, whether it's health, research, my own learning and education, or just connection with other people. I Personal think life. Personal I love it. Yeah. Thanks,
0: Bonnie. That's amazing. That's yeah. a great answer, dude. Yeah. I love it. If you were <laughs> just like, if you were at the edge of your comfort zone and you were like, oh man, I'm excited about this. That's radical.
1: Yeah. I mean, who knows? You know, I'm like, I've been like, uh, I go to, I get to go to these things all the time and they're like really great opportunities and you know, like you're around such cool people. And I, I kind of felt like this girl was like really cool and that she would like gain from it and learn from it and enjoy it. So, I mean, you literally, the question was about the past week. And so that's like what I did for the past week. That sounds amazing. Yeah, to my, me. That sounds amazing to me. Yeah. Well, thanks, man.
0: Thanks for coming on, dude. Thanks for coming on. You guys, thanks for joining us. You know what to do. Stay radical. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening to that episode. I really enjoyed that conversation with Max. I think you're really going to like the one that we did for his podcast. Again, he challenged me on a lot of stuff. We really, I think, pushed the envelope in terms of ideas around epidemiology, minerals. And I won't speak for Max, but I think that he was surprised at what he heard. And I think that he was pleasantly surprised and he's a very open-minded guy. So I'm hoping that, um, that he will, you know, appreciate the carnivore diet more in the future. I think he does. So... Check out supplements.com. I appreciate what these guys are doing to bring the organ meats to more people. Check out my newsletter, The Fundamental Health Insider, Be an Insider, Be in the Cool Kids Club. Check out Juve, www.juve, joov front slash Paul. I really like my light, guys. I get relaxed. My REM sleep gets better. My deep sleep gets better. I raise my testosterone. I'm going to talk about more in the future. All right. I enjoy this. I appreciate you all. So much gratitude. Stay Radical.